All right, let's get into it, guys. We are going to be in Luke 23, if you want to get ahead of me. But, you know, here's the deal. There's times in life when, um, I can leave that there, when our words just carry more weight. They just have a little bit more um, intensity to them. They have a little bit more meaning to us. You think you get married, the vows just are this special moment, you know, and a lot of people are doing their own vows right now, so you don't get to kind of hear what the husband and wife say to each other. Just to be honest with you, I've never heard a husband's vows be better than the wife's ones, so you're taking a risk, guys, when you do the written vows. The women always are just so much more heartfelt and meaningful. I'm just going to be honest. Uh, a speech during critical moment in history, you know, we have these memorable moments from presidents and other people and giving these things, and even, honestly, just somebody on a deathbed. Sometimes we carry those words a little bit more weight. These are actual, literal um, quotes from some famous people on their deathbeds, and this is, some of these are kind of interesting. So there was one infamous guy who actually had to stand before a firing squad because he was about to be killed, and they said, do you have any last requests? And he said, yes, a bulletproof vest. <laughs> um, a well-known Spanish general um, he was about to die, and actually one of the popes at the time said, hey, do you have anybody you need to forgive before you die? And this general said, no, I had them all shot. That's a pretty good answer, actually. He took care, he took care of all the loose ends right there. This, this one, this is another true story. John, uh, general John Sedgwick, this was a Civil War general. They were in the middle of a battle, and this is what he said. They couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. Anybody who's not laughing right now, don't worry. Think about it for a little bit. Talk to the person next to you. It'll eventually hit you, all right? Or it just wasn't funny. That's why you're not laughing, all right? So here's the deal. You know, sometimes words have a weight to them. I actually, I had a friend the last couple months um, got a call that his mom uh, had cancer, a really serious form of cancer. She literally had weeks, days. He went out there to see her. They didn't know how much time. And when he got to see her, she, he actually caught her right before she passed away. And her last words to him were, I love you, his own mother. And this guy, he's like this hardened business dude, you know, makes all this money. I've never seen this guy get emotional. He calls me on the phone and he starts crying. He's like, Brian, my mother has never told me she's loved me my entire life. And, you know, those are just words that you just hold so dearly. So words have power, especially when they are spoken. And we started this series last week called Famous Last Words. And these are some of the very last words spoken by Jesus in his last day of life here on earth, on the cross. These are words he actually is speaking moments before he dies. And so they just have a special weight. They have a special power to them. And these are words you wouldn't even expect to remember, but we know when we see Jesus on the cross and we read these words, there's more to this guy than just being some common criminal, which is why we're reading them even today, 2,000 years later. And I think they have something to say to us. So we're going to read this in just a moment, but I got to give some context if you're just jumping in. So while we read these words, you got to understand, Jesus has his hands and feet nailed through a cross, He's been severely flogged. I mean, he is just inches away from death. He's been wrongly accused by religious leaders. He was a piece of political meat for people to use in their own opportunism. His own friends betrayed him. And this is really, truly the worst moment of his entire life. And what's kind of interesting, here's some side stuff for any of you Bible nerds. This is kind of an interesting little tidbit. Some scholars actually believe that, and you got to have this interesting fact here, Jesus was crucified with two other people next to him, right? Some of you guys know that fact. But if you rewind a little bit, Jesus, you know, got traded for this other criminal named Barabbas. If you guys remember, Pilate said, do you guys want Barabbas or Jesus? And Barabbas was this guy guilty of murder and insurrection. And a lot of people believe that the cross Jesus was on was actually meant for that guy. So Jesus is here between these two criminals in this moment. 
He's moments away from death, and this is what we see in Luke 23, verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now, we're going to do a little bit of a contrast here between these two criminals. And so we're going to take a moment here looking at what we might call the hardened criminal. All right? We're going to take a moment and do some commentary on this. Now, this is funny. Not funny, but it's kind of sad. Jesus here is moments away from dying. He's got his nails through his hands. And if that ain't bad enough, you have the dude on a cross next to you spitting insults at you. I mean, this is a bad day, and this guy's just making it worse. And if you just look at a little bit of context here, what you got to note is this guy isn't serious at all when he's saying this. There's actually just pure contempt and cynicism mixed in what he's saying. He's basically saying, if you're so great, just do something, which we know you can't and you're not because we're both on a cross together. And yet, if you take the other context and picture, this guy should be on this cross. He's actually guilty. He is suffering justly, and yet there's not a single ounce of remorse. There's no regret, and it's just pure resentment and retaliation. Now, just a couple of years ago, this book was put out by these two sociologists called The Rise of Victimhood Culture. And this is kind of a fascinating study these guys are starting to talk about because they're saying there's a new emergent culture in the West, particularly in America, which he calls victim, they call victimhood culture. And he's saying it's clashing with what we have known for the last 100 plus years or so, which are honor and dignity cultures. Okay. Now, here's the thing. No culture is perfect. All right. That's not what we're saying. But these honor and dignity cultures, they actually promote things like moral values, the importance of the individual, and even things like forgiveness and reconciliation. These guys make an argument that this victimhood culture is starting to surface around us, and this is how they describe it. An extreme sensitivity to personal insult. I'm sure you don't know anything about that in our culture today. Even unintentional slights can provoke severe conflicts, and people seek to publicize the offense as much as possible as a form of retribution. If you've ever seen like social media hate and stuff like that. Now they actually go on and talk about some of the dynamics that this creates. And they say, here's what victimhood culture can actually lead to. Less empathy for pain and suffering in people, a sense of moral elitism, where your identity as a victim actually provides status and you see yourself as superior as other people. They even say it diminishes incentive for good behavior because that's ultimately what's not rewarded victim statuses. Now, they talk in this book that, and this was in 2018 when they published this, they said the majority of places you see this right now is actually on college campuses. That's what they were talking about. It makes you wonder what is going to happen to maybe your culture as this becomes more mainstream, you know, as this dynamic starts to take place. Now, hear me. There are legitimate victims in our culture, okay? And they should seek out justice. We need to right wrongs. Okay, so I'm not saying there's no such thing as non-victims. But what fascinates me about studies like this, and even what this hardened criminal is saying on the cross, I think there's some consistency there. And here's just this dynamic we have to acknowledge. Every single one of us, this is just human nature, we have a bent towards resisting personal responsibility. We all do. As much as we hate to admit it, a lot of sometimes the pain and suffering in our own lives is our own fault. I just this last week, I was being a good dad. I was picking up my four-year-old son from school, doing the dad thing. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take the back roads home. I'm going to get home quick. We're going to do this thing. And of course, it's one of those deals where you like just go over the hill a little bit and then you come down. And so I'm going up the hill. I'm all excited to get home. What do you think is over the other side of the hill? 
A good old police car. I see you guys. You guys know where this is going already. And so I'm over it and I see it. And he's coming this way towards me. I'm like, and you know how you just have that moment of sheer terror? Because you know what you were doing. Like the guilt is there. And I look in my rearview mirror. The car's pulling a U-turn right behind me. And you're like, oh, dear Lord. You start praying. Like your prayer life just gets really intense right there. And you're just hoping, surely there's something more important than me going on in this world that needs to be taken care of, right? Somebody's out there that needs real help. Well, of course, the lights go on. And then the terror sets in. And I'm like, oh, geez. Pull over. And I'll be honest with you guys, I was going a little bit faster than the speed limit, probably, though he never showed me the radar gun or anything. And just so you know, I do believe in respecting law enforcement. I'm very grateful for officers and all of those things. But can I also have an honest moment right here? I was not happy about this guy in this moment. I was like, dude, come on. This is a total speed trap. I wasn't saying this to him. These were all thoughts in my head. As a responsible pastor, I would not say the things out of my mouth. But I'm, I'm mad. I'm like, come on, dude, seriously, like, I'm not risking anybody's life, this is a farm road, there's like, what am I going to hit, a cow? Like, there's nothing happening out here. And of course he pulls up, you know, hi officer, you know, all happy and stuff. And the thing that just makes it even like, just adds the icing on the cake, my four-year-old son is in the back, totally oblivious of the fact that I'm about to have to pay $150 for a ticket, so he's like, dad, can I see his car? Can, can I go in it? And then he adds some other comment, he's like, he's like, mommy got a ticket on this road a couple months ago. Which is a fact, by the way. Which is why Nicole could not be mad at me last week. She's like, yeah, I, I got one there too. So I, we're even Steven now. But, you know, it's so funny though. I, I was guilty. Like, it was my fault. The, this officer was totally legitimate. But everything inside me wanted to say, this is a stupid law. This is, why should I have to pay $150 for this? Like, my, this is the dumbest thing ever. I'm, I'm taking it out on the cop in my mind. Like, I don't like personal responsibility. I don't want to be accountable for my stuff sometimes. And all of us, can we just admit, we do dumb stuff sometimes. And we don't like facing the consequences. We just don't. I actually, this, was, this is not going to be on the screens, but it kind of made me chuckle. This was in my Bible plan yesterday. I'm just reading through the Bible. Proverbs 19.3, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then are angry at the Lord. That's the verse. <laughs> Come on. Did you have those moments? Come on, God. Yes, I know I was speeding, but seriously, did I have to get the ticket? I mean, geez, can't you like work out, you know, the universe to not be bent against me with my speeding? And sometimes we get even angry at other people. It's not even God sometimes. But let's, let's just be honest here. The situations and dynamics of our lives just cause us sometimes to lose faith in God, to lose faith in people, and to harden ourselves towards even God and people. And so you have these moments where you can actually become more resistant to facing reality and being willing to change. Even when the facts are confronting you, we, we feel this inside of us. Sometimes we even slip into self-destructive patterns and habits, and we find all sorts of ways to justify it in our minds and let it slip and just go by us. And over time, your heart can become a big slab of concrete. You become hardened. So this is an honest moment of reflection for us, okay? I promise this is good for the soul. Real question to ask ourselves right now. Have I allowed the circumstances of my own life, whether self-inflicted or not, to harden me towards God or other people? Have you allowed yourself to be hardened towards people and God in your life because of some of the things you've experienced? Honestly, are you a little bit colder towards people than maybe you were even a few years ago? Are you a little bit more resentful 
towards certain things? Are you nursing a bitterness inside that's just festering? What's your attitude towards God right now in this moment? Sometimes when you stop and catch your thinking, you're like, you know what? I can get a little condescending towards God sometimes. Like, God, if you're so good, why don't you fix this thing? I can't believe a God that won't fix my problems. And this hardening effect can just happen in our hearts. What we see from this man on this cross is that we don't get to blame our circumstances for our attitude towards God. We don't get that pass. This man is staring at Jesus, God in the flesh, the very person who created him. He's staring at his creator, and the only thing that can come out of him are insults and verbal grenades. He allowed himself to get hardened through the course of his life, and even the very presence of God's love in the flesh is not enough to soften him towards it. And so that is just an honest challenge to us. Am I becoming hardened? But there's a contrast here. We got the hardened criminal on Jesus' side, but we got a whole other criminal on the other side. And this is who we would probably call the humbled criminal. The humbled criminal. Look what this guy says in response to this guy. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, this is interesting. He says, don't, fear, don't you fear God? What does God have to do with this situation right now? They wronged the state, probably through insurrection. They're trying to overthrow the Roman government in some way. They probably murdered some people in the process. So what, why are you bringing God into this whole process? This, this guy has perspective on accountability that he's trying to help this other guy see. Because we all understand accountability on some level, right? We've got some accountability to our city, our county, our state. That's why I got a $150 ticket last week, which I promise I'm not bitter about at all. But we're accountable to the laws and designs of where we live. I, you know, every state has kind of ridiculous laws. And so I just, I was kind of interested in what Colorado's are. So the, these are some real things. In Logan County, it's illegal to kiss a woman while she's sleeping, which makes you wonder what happened for them to institute that law. Like what possibly could have gone down for that to be a law? Because this is always in response to something ridiculous. In Louisville, apparently you can own turkeys, but not chickens. I don't know if anybody's lived in Louisville before, but um, you can't have chickens, but turkeys. You can fact check that. I don't know. It's what I saw. This one was interesting. I tried to verify this multiple times because I don't understand it. Denver apparently has some law where you're not supposed to lend your vacuum cleaner to an immediate next door neighbor, but you can loan it to somebody else down the... What? I don't get it at all, right? So you can look that up later. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Even stupid laws, we have some accountability. But here's what this guy's talking about. He's saying, we're not just guilty before the state. We're guilty before God. And God has established perfect moral laws for the universe. Ways for us to relate to him and relate to other people. So when we wrong another person, when we sin, it's not just an offense against that person or even harm to ourselves. It is an offense to God. That is what this guy is saying. And I know for a lot of us, that, that doesn't rub right. You know, we don't like to hear that. Because, you know, our attitude in our culture is, hey, it's my life, all right? I'm going to do what I want with my life. I don't have to answer to anybody. This is my deal. Now, here's the thing. On one level, you're right. It is your life. You can do whatever you want with it. You have total freedom. But what you do need to know is your life is on loan right now. It was given to you by God to steward. And you're accountable. I mean, these are the verses that kind of just sober you up a little bit, but 
they're in the Bible, so we just got to acknowledge them. Paul in Romans 14 says, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Hebrews 9.27, people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. This guy says, don't you fear God. Now, he's not talking about living in this perpetual terror of God. He's talking about just a holy reverence and awareness of the fact that we do stand before him. And, you know, similar to like my own kids, my kids don't live in constant fear to me, but they have learned you play stupid games, you're going to win stupid prizes. <laughs> that's just how this works. There's some accountability in place. And that's exactly what this guy is saying too. Don't you see? We're not just getting killed by the Romans right now for our wrongs. We're, we're guilty before God too. You need to have some healthy fear. But even when he acknowledges that, he's saying we're guilty. Don't you just see that? Why are you, why are you chewing out Jesus? He's the one innocent guy up here. Look what he says after this. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what would lead this guy to even say something so ridiculous? Think about all the perspectives of Jesus in this moment. The religious leaders see him as just a threat to the system. The politicians see him as some failed upriser trying to raise a revolution. His own followers are there and they're thinking, this dude was supposed to be the Messiah. Now he's, Messiahs don't get crucified. So they think he's just some failed hope that they had. Everybody has some perspective on Jesus right now in this moment. I'm wondering right now, if you were to ask, what is your perspective on Jesus right now in this moment? Like, how would you label him? Because all these people, they're looking at the different inputs they have, their personal experiences, what Jesus said, now seeing him on a cross, and they're making some judgment. What's your judgment of Jesus right now? And is it possible that your opinion of him is actually wrong? Or that you're missing some key details? Are you open to the fact that you may not have the whole picture? Because these people, they don't have the whole picture. And yet this guy, out of all the things he could be calling Jesus, he's like, Jesus, I believe you're a king. The last thing Jesus could possibly look like right now is a king. He is nailed to the same type of cross as this guy. He is getting killed. He's going to die. And something in this guy, maybe you heard the rumors. Maybe he's just looking at Jesus' response. He's like, I don't know what it is. There's something more to this guy than just being some criminal on the cross like me. There's something more to him. So Jesus, I don't even know how to say this. I don't even know what kind of thing you have in the store. But please, can you just remember me? This dude doesn't even know what he's asking. Like, he truly doesn't even understand. But what he does know is he's like, I've got no right to demand my way into this thing. I've got no moral high ground to stand on. And so I am just asking in desperate humility, Jesus, whatever you have going on, can you just please not forget me in this process? Now, if this was any normal situation, you know what you'd expect right now? Jesus on the middle cross saying, kingdom? You want to talk to me about a kingdom, dude? Do you, do you see that I'm on a cross right now with you? How about we talk about getting off the cross and going to the ER? How about we talk about that? That's what I would expect Jesus to be saying right now. These people want to talk about kingdoms right now. I'm dying, dude. Okay, it's over. Game over. That's, that's how the story should end. Look at Jesus' response to this criminal at his request. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, we have to take a moment to fully appreciate what Jesus is even saying. This word paradise, you actually only see it just a few times in the New Testament. It's not used very often. And probably the word some of us would expect there is heaven, right? You'll see me in heaven. Now, let's just do a little back end work because we need to understand this. 
sometimes you'll see heaven used in different ways in the New Testament or even throughout the Bible. So sometimes you'll see heavens, people talking about the heavens, and they're just referring to the sky or space above, just heavens. Sometimes you'll see Jesus and other people talking about the kingdom of heaven. You'll hear him say that sometimes. And when he's talking about that, he's talking about this perfect rule and reign of God that is working out in the world but has not come to total fruition, which is why we still have sin and brokenness. But it's coming. This kingdom of heaven is in the works. You'll also, though, if you read through the whole Bible, sometimes in Revelation, you'll see these references to the new heavens and new earth. Sometimes you'll hear that. And that's talking about this day when God will perfectly integrate heaven and earth together, when Jesus returns, bringing in the fulfillment of all human history, and he'll redeem everything. But there's one fourth way of kind of understanding this, which is how I think most of us think about this, and this is what I think Jesus is talking about too, just heaven. It is this spiritual realm outside of our own physical existence. It's this place of conscious existence to be in the presence and power of God. And it's where followers of Jesus go after they die to be in God's presence. It is heaven. It's the place we go as God is working out in human history, the ultimate end of new heavens and new earth. And Jesus calls it paradise. Paradise. What comes to your mind when you think of paradise? I had a I had a paradise moment about a week and a half ago, just a taste. My, my wife and kids were out of town for spring break, seeing some family. I would have been fine with my kids going. My wife could have stayed, but it, I'm not going to lie. It was nice to get a break from the kids. I'm just going to be real. And so I kind of had one of those you only live once moments. There's never a good time to do it, especially hard when you work on weekends. But I went out snowboarding with a friend. So I'm like, we're just going to get out and take a day. And it was just this awesome, perfect sunny day. The snow was great. The lines were shockingly short, even though it was spring break week. And it was just this full day of hanging out with friends and having fun. And I'll tell you, it's really hard when you're snowboarding down a hill to be working on your taxes or changing the oil in your car or prepping a sermon or looking at a budget. It's just pure delight. It's just good times. It was just a taste looking at God's beauty and what he created of paradise. It's paradise. Now, I know some of you guys are like, ew, Brian, snow driving on 70 to get to the mountains? That is not paradise at all. I don't care how fun that snowboarding was. So maybe you're more like my wife. You think of paradise, you're like, beach, sun, warm weather, just maybe sitting around lazing with some good food, a book or something. I'm wondering, what's your paradise? What comes to mind for you when you start thinking about this paradise experience? When, whenever you see this used in the Bible, it's meant to give allusions to pristine conditions. This ideal environment, like a literal tr translation might be a place of supreme happiness and pleasure. Paradise. Now, get this. Jesus says nothing to this guy about, well, here's the thing. You got to go to purgatory for a couple thousand years to pay off the rest of the sins because you didn't check enough of the boxes. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry. You're just going to poof into nothingness. You, don't you won't remember any of this. It's all going to be over. Like your existence is going to end. So just be fine. Just wait for it to come. He doesn't say anything about you're just going to be in this spiritual holding pattern, just waiting for something to happen, just floating around in the abyss. He doesn't even say anything about, hey, don't worry. You're going to go into like this spiritual sleep state and just lose consciousness for a couple thousand years till I come back. No, he's like, today, today, today. We're going to be in paradise together. J just hypothetical scenario. Just imagine how this situation must have played out. Because these guys are moments away from death. This dude, after Jesus says this, dies. Maybe minutes, hours later at most, he dies. Just a hypothetical scenario again. He's at the pearly gates. Maybe Gabriel's there waiting for him. And Gabriel's like, okay, hey, welcome to heaven. What brings you here? And the guy's like, 
honestly, I have no idea. I just died. I just got nailed to a cross back there, and I'm not sure what I'm doing. And the guy's like, well, okay, let me look through your records here. Let me see what's going on. Um, let me call my supervisor, Peter. Can you help me figure this guy out? He doesn't even know what he's doing here. And, like, Peter comes, and he's like, okay, um, well, hey, how was your church attendance in, in, in life? And the guy's like, well, I never went to church before. I was too busy killing people and trying to overthrow the Roman government. He's like, oh, okay, okay. Have, have, you, have you read the Bible a couple times? How, how's your scripture knowledge? He's like, no, I've, I've never read the Bible either before. I've never owned one. I've never read it. Okay, okay, let's try to get really basic here. What are your views on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith? And the guy's like, what's a doctrine? I don't, what are we even talking about? They're just hammering with questions. I could picture this guy just getting to this moment of being like, listen, guys, I don't know the answers to any of these questions. This is all I know. The man on the middle cross told me I can come. He said I could be here. That's all I know. That's all I got to say. And let me tell you this right now, Lauren Hills. That is the perfect answer. That is the exact right response. Guys, this is what we call the gospel. This is what we mean by the good news. Do you guys get this? Jesus, he didn't work through this guy's past. He didn't make him confess every single thin sin. He didn't put him through some vetting process. This guy doesn't give any type of formal presentation of his faith, it, it, talking about any theological definitions. He just says, Jesus, remember me. A humble gesture of whatever little faith he has. You know what Jesus says? That's enough to get you in. I can work with that. That's more than enough. I'll see you in paradise today. Let me tell you this. If anybody ever asks you, how do you know you're going to heaven? If your answer starts with, well, because I. Because I've lived a pretty good life. Because I'm a decent person. Because I've been through a lot. If your answer starts with, because I, on any level, hear me, you don't understand how this works. You completely miss the point. I need to make sure you understand this. That is not how this works. The only proper response to how do you know you're going to heaven is because he. Because he. Because of what Jesus did for me. Because he has shown me so much grace. Because he has shown me so much love. Because of what he did for me on the cross. I have nothing to offer him. It is because of what he has done for me. That is the only thing you have to offer to God. That is the only proper answer. It's because of him. That's all I got. <laughs> Thank you for that one clap. I appreciate it. I need to make this as clear as I possibly can. I have to make sure we fundamentally understand this on every level. Because even if you've been a Christian your whole life, you've been in church, you slip into this moralism thinking somehow you're earning and proving and needing to just edge your way in. Hear me today. You have nothing to offer God. I don't care how good you are, how much money you have, what you've done in your life, you have nothing. Nothing. I don't care how bad or good you are, there's zero you have to offer God. Every single one of us, just know this. We all deserve to be on that cross like that criminal. We are guilty. We stand before God with nothing before him but God, but he, because he. The mercy, the grace, the willingness to go to the cross for us, Jesus has opened the doors of paradise to every single person who will just come to him with whatever humble faith you can muster up. And he says, that is more than enough. I will see you in paradise. I'll tell you guys, I've been walking with God for decades now. 
I've been to seminary. I've been working in the church vocationally for a long time now. I'll tell you guys, none of that really means anything. It really doesn't. And none of that really does much for my faith in encouraging and challenging. You know what my most precious moments with God are? They really are these moments where I'll just be praying or spending time with God. And, and sometimes they're few and far between. But when they do come, they're just so precious. I just have these moments where I'm just like, this is so hilarious. This is so hilarious that somehow I get in. How, how do I get in? Like, trust me, guys, I'm a hot mess. Just know that, all right? I'm an absolute hot mess. Just like all of you too, all right? All of us. And sometimes I'm just praying to God, I'm like, God, this is too good to be true. Like, this is just too good <laughs> that you would cover all of my sins, that you would allow me to have a relationship with you and know you and walk with you. And yet every single morning I wake up, I am one day closer to this paradise that you are guaranteeing me that cannot be taking away this living hope that will not perish or fade. Like, as bad as it gets in this life, as long as I have that to hang on to, man, <laughs> I'm good. Like, I'm good. And if you are in Jesus today, you need to know that's what you have to look forward to. You are promised that by Jesus. You have nothing else to contribute or earn. Pro Paradise is promised to you. And for every single one of us in this room, you need to know that is available to you too as well. Jesus offers that to every single person. There were two men on both sides of Jesus. One looks at him, mocks him, condescends him, hardens his heart, and willingly cuts himself off from Jesus. The other one, in the same exact situation, looks at Jesus, realizes his situation, humbles himself, and just articulates whatever little faith he can even think of in that moment. And through that, the doors of heaven and eternity are opened to him forever. I have to ask you today, what is your response to Jesus? What's your response to him? What's your view? What's your position? Where do you stand? Because one thing Jesus won't do is he will not force himself on you. He's on this cross and he gives both of those men an opportunity to respond in whatever way they choose to decide. He won't force himself on you. But you need to know today, he is making himself available to you. And he opened the doors for a murderous criminal who had nothing to offer and was nailed to a cross. And that man was promised paradise. I'm telling you, when you realize, Jesus, I got nothing to offer you. I'm just totally relying on your grace. Will you just remember me? He'll say, I can work with that. That's paradise for you too. Just a humble trust in me, the acknowledgement of your need. And so as we close the service today, I'm just going to pray. And I'm going to thank God for the amazing grace that we have in him and the hope we have in Christ. But I'm also going to give an opportunity in that moment for you to pray. If you have truly never actually had a moment where you just humbled yourself before Jesus, said, Jesus, I just need you. I, I need your hope. I'm not asking if you went to church, if you've read the Bible, if you know some spiritual stuff. I'm just asking if you've had that moment. You can even pray that in your heart today as I pray. And you have a promise from Jesus that you will be with him in paradise. And it's the greatest gift you could possibly imagine.
So let's go to Jesus in prayer right now. Lord, we are just so astounded by your goodness that even on a cross, Lord, you'd have the sense of mind to open up paradise to a criminal, guilty, a guilty criminal, just by sheer grace, Lord, that you would make eternity available to him, total forgiveness. We just thank you so much for those of us, Lord, who have trusted you, the hope we have in you, Lord. It's just so wonderful. And for anybody even just struggling right now, just going through stuff, I just pray you would refresh that hope in them, that they would know as bad as it may get in this life, we are one day closer to paradise. We are one day closer to just this living hope that we have in you. And for us in this room, if there is anybody here right now where you'd say, you know what? I want to be sure that I have trusted Jesus. I, I want to truly genuinely humble myself and place my faith in him. You can just pray in your heart right now and say, Jesus, I trust you. I need you. I realize that I, I am guilty. I'm not perfect. That I, I can't do this thing on my own. You just place whatever little faith you can muster up in him right now and reach out to him. And his words back to you are, you will be with me in paradise. That is a promise. Lord, I thank you for everybody reaching out to you right now. We thank you for the amazing grace we have in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Can we just give a hand for anybody who was praying with us today and celebrate salvation, what God's done? <clears throat> I want to give you one challenge. If you if you truly did, did pray, you had a moment where you're like, man, like I, I needed that clarity and, and I needed to do that. I want to give you a challenge. We're going to have prayer available after we close the service here in a couple of minutes. I'll be up front, some of the other staff and volunteers. I want to challenge you to come up and just say, hey, I prayed today. Like, I, I really, I really reached out. And you don't even have to be fancy. You just say that. And you know what's just going to happen? You're just going to get a big, fat hug. That's what you're going to get. And here's the thing. If you don't like hugs, well, too bad. You're going to get a hug. But if you really don't want one, we'll respect your personal space. But we really want to celebrate with you. I'm telling you, if Jesus is willing to go to a cross for you, you can at least go to somebody and declare your faith in him publicly. There's a power in that, just saying, I did that. And this prayer will be available to anybody, but that'll be an amazing next step. Just say, you know, I did it, I prayed. We just want to celebrate that with you. But we're going to sing one last song, guys. This is about, again, just the amazing power of Jesus, the goodness of God, and the hope of heaven. So as we stand together and get ready to close in song, let's really sing this out as a church, right? I'm going to invite the worship team up, and let's do this together. Thanks for checking out this week's message. If you'd like to get involved here at Northern Hills, check out our website at inhills.org or download the Northern Hills app. We hope to see you again soon.